Recently, I saw a meme several times on Facebook. It said something to the effect of, I can't wait to spend hours preparing Thanksgiving dinner so my daughter will eat a roll. Certainly one of the most frustrating experiences any parent can have is having a child that will not or cannot eat. Today's show is a little different. Rather than share a story of another family, I'm rebroadcasting a conversation I had with Don Winkleman, a speech-language pathologist and feeding therapist with 20 years of experience in helping children overcome feeding difficulties. Don and I had this conversation on a relatively new social media platform called Blab, B-L-A-B. It's a fun and casual platform where up to four people can chat in a streaming video session while hundreds of others can watch, chat, and ask questions in the sidebar. I'll be using Blab to chat with experts and specialists because I love the live and interactive capabilities it has. I know that not everyone can watch and participate live, so I wanted to make sure that you could hear the discussion and catch all of the great tips in a regular podcast episode. Chatting with Don was so fun and I learned a ton. If you've dealt with any kind of feeding issues, swallowing difficulties, or even just a picky eater, this episode is for you. Don offers some great tips on making mealtimes easier for everyone, so stay with us. In January of 2013, my baby girl Betty was born. Later, we discovered a chromosomal deletion that would affect the rest of her life. I created this podcast to share the stories and struggles of special needs children and their families. This is episode 14 of Bringing Up Betty. I'm Sarah Evans. Welcome, everyone. Hi, everybody. I'm I'm Sarah Evans, and I host um, the podcast Bringing Up Betty. Today is our very first, I'm going to call them Bub Blabs. I love it. We are really excited to be joined by Dawn Winkleman. And she is a feeding therapist with 20 years experience in helping families and children with feeding struggles, feeding disorders, feeding issues, um, overcome those and help them learn to eat and get the nourishment that they need. And I am, like I said, the host of Bringing Up Betty. And more importantly, I'm Betty's mom. I have um, two little girls. Betty is almost three and my older daughter is almost five. And um, Betty has a rare chromosome disorder called Pataki Schaefer syndrome. And um, she's with that got a lot of developmental delays and a lot of other challenges and feeding was part of that. So I breastfed her for the first year, but around six to nine months, she started losing weight And so that was kind of a red flag. So her pediatrician um, told us to supplement with formula. So we started bottles and I was breastfeeding and doing formula. And then um, she was just on bottles from a year until almost two years. We were trying to get her to eat solids, but it took a lot of work. So we spent over a year in feeding therapy, just getting her used to having food in her mouth and learning to chew and she's still working on some of those issues and now we're trying to work on using utensils Um, but thankfully 
she has made a lot of progress. And um, thanks to the easy peasy, happy mat, and this Yay. is a legitimate plug, I'm not just saying that, um, she now can eat at the table with us because we just put the mat right on her, on the table and pull her little high chair up. And she just goes at it with both hands and um, loves all food now. We're so thankful and uh-huh. can tolerate most textures. So, um yeah, it's been really fun to have her at the table, even though she makes a huge mess. <laughs> um, but we're so happy to have Dawn here. Do you want to introduce yourself, Dawn? Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Dawn Winkleman. And like she said, I have 20 years experience uh, feeding uh, kids of all ages, um, particularly, usually parents come to me about four to six months of age when they're about ready to transition to solids. So that's a a high um, age group for me, as well as all the way up through the teen years. And um, I specialize in feeding and swallowing disorders, which we're going to talk a lot about today, as well as just our traditional picky eaters. So I uh, work a lot with kids with special needs and developmental delays, as well as our neurotypical kids out there who just really struggle too um, with eating. And a lot of people don't take them seriously. So that's a little bit of my background. I am a speech language pathologist by trade uh, with a master's degree and uh, and I work for Easy Peasy Fun. Great. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Easy Peasy, I hope that we can tell you some of the great things about it while we discuss feeding. Yes. Um, I guess to just start off, I first um, found Easy Peasy. It was a Kickstarter campaign, and I um, saw it on Facebook or something. I think it was the baby, NYC baby guy. Baby guy, yeah. Yeah, I think he kind of, like, made that whole thing catch fire, right? Totally. Um, and, he, like, he was pulling up a table, like, that that the Easy Peasy tray was stuck to and, like, yes. showing that, like, a kid couldn't grab the edge of it and, like, just rip it off. And I knew if we tried to give Betty a plate, she would just toss it. Yep. So um, we're very thankful for the Easy Peasy Happy Mat. And now there have been even more products developed, which we can't yes. wait to try. Um, also, for anyone that's here participating in the chat on the on the right side, if you do um, a slash Q like this, but with no space, um, and then type a question, then it will be tagged as a question for us so we can make note of it and um, we can address any questions that you have as we go. Great. So let's see, to start off, um, do you want to just talk about what feeding therapy looks like for a child with special needs? Sure. Uh, So feeding therapy in general can be a wide range of things. We always say in our field that feeding therapy is an art because every speech pathologist who specializes in feeding or an occupational therapist, we all go to different continuing education seminars and we kind of have a bag of tricks. We go through all these different seminars, which actually we're going to be at ASHA tomorrow, the American Speech Language and Hearing Association. And um, there they have all these different classes where you can get certified in different techniques and programs. And so we know every kid's feeding challenges are different. And so you want to uh, be able to have a therapist that has a wide range of tools, not only in their bag of tricks of what they've attended to as far as seminars, but also feeding products. And so The differences with our kids with uh, special needs as compared to some of our traditional pricky eaters is that sometimes they're nonverbal. 
So you kind of have to really be able to read into some of their sensory issues, their motor delays, um, maybe some cognitive abilities, uh, their balance, their posture, all of those things, respiratory issues. I work with a lot of kids with trachs or on ventilators who, you know, the doctors say that they're not able to eat, which is not true. Um, and so being able to kind of have that ability to transition in the mealtime, as well as being able to, to handle all the um, medical issues that come with it. I've had several kids, you know, code on me during a therapy session. Um, I've had, you know, several kids, you know, really decrease in their oxygen saturations. I mean, I had a few kids with food allergies. I mean, there's a variety of differences in the special needs population, uh, which is one of the main reasons why I love to have parents in on my therapy sessions because of the fact that, you know, we want all these strategies to kind of carry over. So that's a little, some of the differences with working with uh, kids with special needs. Yeah. So um, can you like identify any specific surprising struggles you may have had as a feeding therapist? Um, I mean, you talked about someone coding on you. That's yes. kind of scary. Yes, that was scary. Um, some of the, I'll, I'll say some funny ones too, so it's not all horrible, but um, having other therapists work with the same kid at the same time. So I have some kids who are in, you know, behavioral therapy, and they're working on some feeding issues. They're also in occupational therapy, and they're working on some feeding issues. Um, or they're seeing a psychologist, and they're working on some feeding issues. So having that struggle between, you know, what a speech pathologist might say and some other discipline can be really complicated. Uh, some other struggles have been, uh, you know, trying to build trust in the relationship after it's been broken when it's feeding, whether it's been, you know, kids have had tubes down their throats or, you know, anyone in a pair of scrubs, because I'm usually in scrubs when I'm working with kids because I get really messy, uh, you know, having that trust that has to be reestablished and having them want me to eat some of the foods that they're eating. Uh, mm -hmm. Primarily, usually I've drank a lot of breast milk in my day. <laughs> <laughs> just because you know they're like here try this in my bottle I'm like okay I have to I have to establish that trust so drink a lot of breast milk um I've also <laughs> drank some very odd foods um because we you know come from different cultures and different backgrounds and so um you know eating you know foods especially when I was a vegetarian at a time and having to eat some you know meat that I wasn't really familiar with uh, but those are always fun <laughs> and and exciting but can be a little challenging in the therapy session especially yeah. when they ask me to drink some of the breast milk and then they offer it to dad and dad doesn't drink it. Uh -huh. <laughs> so then we have the challenges there too, but uh, right. it's all in good fun. <laughs> That's great. So um, to depart a little bit from like the special needs side of things, mm. um, do you, cause I was thinking of, you know, eating the, the foods that we're feeding our kids. Um, how do you feel about like baby food versus maybe mm. like the baby led weaning? Oh, yeah. Good question. So baby led weaning is really taking off. I mean, I've been speaking about that nationally probably for about two years. Uh, but it's, you know, within the last few months, it's just really taking off. And um, do you want to describe what that is? Oh, sure. I'm sorry. Baby led weaning is an approach to feeding. So it's kind of skipping the purees and going to regular table foods and just being able to have your kids eat some of the same foods that you're eating. So 
we have our moms who like to make their own organic baby food in their kitchen, which is amazing, or moms who just don't have a lot of time, and so they buy canned or jar baby food, and then some moms who really want their kids to participate at the mealtime at the table and be able to give them their own foods. I love baby load weaning and the baby load weaning approach. Um, it's just a lot of parents aren't as familiar with all the pros and cons that go with that. So I'll just kind of talk about a few. Uh, one is that I'll have a family saying, yeah, we started baby led weaning and we've been feeding them um, table foods. And that's not really what their approach is all about. Their approach is basically waiting for the child to have their own posture because they're supposed to be able to sit up on their own. And that's usually around six months of age. Because uh, that's the number one uh, fear with kids with choking is if they don't have their posture, they can easily choke on these table foods. Secondly, it's not about us feeding them. It's about them being able to explore and pick up those foods and eat them themselves. And so they have to have some of the fine motor movements and the gross motor movements to be able to kind of hold onto the plate and feed themselves. And so I always support any parent's decision on whether they you know, breastfeed, bottle feed, use purees, do baby led weaning. Uh, just the most important thing is that it's the safest um, way for that particular child. Yeah. Yeah, I know for us, like when I was pregnant with Betty, that's kind of when I had heard more about baby led weaning and I was so excited about it. I was like, oh, I'm totally going to do that with this baby. And then, of course, she had all these challenges. And so it was not really an option. Um, you know, she was mostly fed with a bottle until she was almost two. So um, that was kind of hard. <laughs> but I think it's a, a great way to go. And hope to explore that if we have more kids. And I think that's a really um, good topic to talk about is that, you know, the number one thing is, you know, we have all of these ideas in our heads when we're working with our kids and, you know, that we're going to, we're going to do this and then we're going to do that. And then kind of life throws a wrench, but that is the most important thing about any type of therapy and any type of parent decision is being able to make the right choice for your child. You didn't force it. You knew that, you know, hey, we had to get good nutrition. We had to work on her suck. You know, bottle is the best alternative for that. And so being able to balance that and kind of let go of, you know, our preconceived mindset of how we want to feed kids and being able to do what's right. So I applaud you for that. Thanks. <laughs> um, so what advice would you give to parents who are struggling with mealtime. I mean, we could do, oh. we could do this all about my almost five-year-old because she's, <laughs> Betty eats everything now. And my Clara is, she struggles. She's is very picky. She doesn't want to sit down to eat. We've tried the, like, this is what's for dinner, eat it, or there's nothing else we've, you know, and it's, it's hard. So <sighs> help. <laughs> <laughs> so there, I mean, there's so many, um, examples and tips and ideas. And I know that, you know, this is just a shameless plug for easy peasy, but I, I, well, let me, let me, before I answer that, let me explain why to the audience, why I'm going to talk about easy peasy products right now is I, I too came into easy peasy with a Kickstarter campaign and from a very different perspective, I, you know, emailed Lindsay and I was like, this is literally the best product I've ever seen in the feeding world. And I was, duct taping, you know, plates and bowls yeah. and things and to be able to have our kids with, you know, motor challenges 
um, and, and any type of delay to be able to participate in mealtime. And when I saw their product, I was just absolutely blown away. And I was like, we have to collaborate. We have to do something together. We have to help kids. So just to throw that out there, it's not, I don't get paid to say anything about easy peasy. This was like a, a, a need that I had as a feeding therapist struggling working with kids on an hourly basis, feeding them and not really having the tools to be able to do that. So one of the, um, best things about encouraging kids to eat and, you know, and explore new foods is really using the happy mat. So this is a happy mat. And what it is, is this cute little face. And in January, um, our book comes out. And I think food art is so important to get kids to be able to want to participate in mealtime. And so being able to use a happy mat and make food fun and curious and interesting and engaging. You know, this is, I mean, you can't stop looking at it, right? It's so cute. And what that does is it just keeps kids engaged. So they don't need the TV. They don't need the iPad. Um, food art also really encourages them to try something new because instead of you mom saying, eat your olives, we can say with this, you know, hey, you want to, you want to try those eyeballs? And it makes it just that language use makes it fun. And so it really helps from the psychological standpoint of that. And then you're a cool mom because you're doing <laughs> something fun, right? And so I just, I love the the language issues um, that surround mealtime instead of saying, you know, Johnny, come to the table, dinner's ready. It's, you know, Johnny, your happy mat's ready. Wait till you see what I did in the smiley face. It just changes all these words. Um, and then with the happy mat too, it helps with, kids to be able to, you know, make the mess, feel to, uh, feel free to explore because a lot of parents don't like a lot of mess at mealtime. And so that the edge of the mat kind of holds all that mess for you. So those kids can really kind of explore that fun. Yeah. Um, that's just one. <laughs> but another way is just to be able to constantly think about textures as well as um, ways to prepare them. So parents will say, oh, Johnny doesn't like carrots. And I'm like, oh, how have you given him carrots? Oh, well, raw. Well, did you try cooked? Did you try steamed? Did you, you know, did you microwave them? I mean, did you add butter? It's, it's being able to have these multiple um, trials of trying it out and letting them know about that. So sometimes in a therapy session, when, you know, they've offered raw carrots and it wasn't a hit, and then I'll say, oh, I steamed these carrots for you today. And they're like, what's steamed? And then, you know, we're starting to use language and being able to, to kind of use that. But there's a few tips. Do you have any um, thoughts on like, I mean, I know for my daughter, if I say it's carrots, you know, if, if that's the example, uh -huh. like it doesn't matter if, if they're steamed or mm. <laughs> roasted or she's just like, thinks she does not like that food. And so she's not going to touch it. Ah, so there's an introduction to foods and textures. And what we do is we find out what their favorite texture is. So let's say it's crunchy. So um, if, if a kid likes chips and crackers and we try to, you know, figure out what type of texture that is, let's say it's crunchy, then I will introduce the carrot as a crunchy food. I know that you like crunchy foods. Here is another crunchy food or here's a whole array of crunchy foods so that they can kind of understand what that texture is because we all have texture issues and yeah. we all have temperature issues. And you know, I mean, that's the beauty of Starbucks, right? I can get it extra hot. I can, you know, get it with two <laughs> pumps of more vanilla. I mean, it's being able to really find out what you like. Uh -huh. And so and the introduction is I made you a, a plate of crunchy foods. 
and right. no verbalization of what those crunchy foods are. Or I made you a, a plate of smooth foods and right. no mention of what those smooth foods are. Because once we, we never say, as feeders, we never say, hey, make sure that you eat your carrot. I mean, make sure that you eat your cake or your cookie. Or we right. never draw any attention to desserts. We right. always draw attention to vegetables. And right. so why do we do that? I mean, because, you know, it's a psychological thing. Well, if mom's making a, you know, a big deal about this carrot, let's say, then it must be, you know, something that she wants me to have, not what I want to have. And so right. we, you know, want that we want the presentation of mealtime to be like we would present a, a birthday cake. Our language, I used to videotape that. Our language at birthday cakes is like, oh my gosh, look, I made this for you. And mm -hmm. it's all this energy. And then when we bring out like kale salad, oh God, here's this kale salad. You know, it's, we're <laughs> expecting, you know, we're expecting that negativity. So being able to kind of try those, those different things. But I find that, you know, explaining the texture and describing the texture and then telling them that we actually, you know, put some thought into that um, yeah. can really go a long way. Okay. Well, along those lines, um, how much should we be catering to the pickiness of our picky mm. kids? Like, do we need to make them a crunchy plate every time we sit down to eat? Or is it sometimes like I made a roast and mashed potatoes. And so here you go. Take There's no crunchy it. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So it depends on what the goal is. So when, whenever you are getting ready to feed your kids. I always tell parents, what is the goal? Is the goal just they haven't, they, they missed their lunch because they refused their lunch. And so the goal is they have to eat dinner. Then we need to cater to that. If the goal is I really want to introduce mashed potatoes, this, you know, puree texture that they're not used to, then yeah. we need to make that, you know, mashed potatoes a little bit more fun. Um, if the goal is that we're just going to sit down together for a meal and we're going to try to keep their attention the whole time for the meal, then that's another goal. We have to figure out what that goal is. And I tell families, make it a monthly routine, whatever that goal is. If the goal okay. is to introduce textures, that's what you're doing for that month. If the goal is to, you know, get two new vegetables in, whatever whatever the goal is, we want to try to streamline that in our presentation. So with the roast beef, mashed potatoes thing, if it's puree she's not used to, then, you know, can we, you know, make that fun? Can we make a happy face? Can we give her, you know, a squirt ketchup bottle and have her make a happy face on that and say, okay, I'm making this for a happy face. Here you go, dad. Dad's making this for a happy face. Here you go. I mean, can right. we try to encourage that? So it's just being able to figure out what the goal is and then moving on from there. Okay. So do you, um, with like older children, do you recommend presenting a plate or a tray that's um, full of food? Or do you think they should be serving themselves from like whatever's on the table? Like, so, here it is. You can take what you want. <laughs> I, I That's called a family mealtime. And I love that approach. Parents don't necessarily like it because then they put, you know, five scoops of, you know, macaroni and cheese and no salad. Right. But if you end up having a, a measurement system, whatever that system can be. So 
going back to the happy mat, you know, we have the two eyes and the mouth. The mouth obviously has the biggest food, so um, the biggest uh, size. So they can feel that happy mat filled with that macaroni and cheese, but one of those eyes has to have the salad. So it's being able to just kind of establish those rules and make that a routine. Um, mm -hmm. Whether or not they eat it is another thing. But being able to, there's so many studies that say if they're able to put that food onto their plate, they're getting used to that food more and more. They're smelling that food, even if they don't eat it, they're smelling it, they're engaging with it, they're, you know, utilizing their senses. And from, again, this, this standpoint of socialness by eating with a family mealtime really starts to portray the ability of them not saying, I don't like it, because right. they've had it on their plate 20 times, whether or not they eat it. Is yeah. the, but eventually, studies show that they will try it. And again, right. we don't make mention of it with my older kids. We don't yeah. make mention of it. Yeah. Didn't, isn't there something like you have to be exposed to new food X yes. number of times before? Yes. So there's different research, but I mean, the, the number is usually 15. And that is 15 if there's no developmental delays. Right. So for kids with autism, it can take 100 plus times. So <laughs> for one food, for one food, which is why, you know, it takes a long time for those kids to, you know, engage in new foods and be able to consistently eat them. Um, and, you know, we have to take into effect that, you know, eating is just such a huge milestone to be able to have different textures. You know, just think about that. You know, we're, we're engaging in all the senses. We're engaging in all of our um, systems, you know, digestion, et cetera, you know, saliva production. There's so much to do um, from a child standpoint. And plus, we're dealing with a system with our kids that, you know, these kids are constantly growing. So what they liked the day before may not be what they like today because their throat just changed or their tongue just got bigger or they just got two new teeth or we're dealing with this system that is just constantly changing and it makes it really difficult to be able to, you know, interact with them. And that's why I think a lot of parents get so confused. Well, we, we tried this and now we're force feeding and then now we're bribing and that, you know, because the child is constantly changing because they're growing and developing and, and we have to kind of catch up to right. what they're doing. Yeah. It's almost with any other routine, like kids are always evolving, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. sleep and play. Yes. And yes. Um, gosh, I had a really good question. I just, oh, the exposure to food, does that need to be on their plate right in front of them? So or in their mat or just on the table or? Yeah, there, there are, you know, different studies that show that just, just having you eat something in front of me exposes me to that food. Obviously, if I'm engaging with that food with a utensil, so if I'm serving and or putting it onto my plate, I'm engaging more about that. The more that we can get kids to engage in that food, the better it is. Because if I eat your mashed potatoes, if I watch you eat the mashed potatoes, I'm, I'm seeing how hard you're biting, how much you're suckling, how many you know, how it's on your tongue, whether or not you can still talk to me and chew at the same time. I'm learning a lot about that. And then if I take that spoon and dip it into the mashed potatoes, I'm learning a lot about that sensory properties, how heavy the mashed potatoes is, how runny it is, how easy it was on the spoon, you know, how that smells, what that sound is, you know, being able to get that out. I'm getting a lot of information from that. And then if I'm able to put that on my plate and then I can hear how heavy it is and then get the smell, I mean, even if they don't eat it, which is our goal as parents, right? We want to be able to, to get them to eat it. But even if we don't, they're that much farther along in the process of willing, being willing to eat it. 
So it's, right. you know, but watching you eat something, even if I'm not sure about it, I always take friends to sushi restaurants and I just, you know, I'm eating the octopus and squid. I'm a huge adventurous <laughs> eater. And they're like, I'm learning a lot about what you're eating, but I'm not going to try it. But they're still learning a lot about it, right? Yeah. Say, come with me 15 more times you and then go. you will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've gotten, I got a question on my blog this okay. morning and on the side about okay. um, food strikes. Um, the question on the blog was particularly about a child that had, um, is refusing like even their favorite foods, just okay. will not eat them. How do you do? manage that? What do you do? So I think education is the number one thing. So let's, let's look at the research on this. So there is a researcher by the name of Dr. Kay Toomey. She's a psychologist and she's done amazing work in our field of feeding disorders in order to be able to kind of give us the information to give to parents. So what she says is that there's picky eaters and then there's problem feeders. I don't really like either of those terms, but th that's how she um, portrays it. So when a parent calls me and says, oh my gosh, I have a picky eater and they are refusing foods, they're going on food strikes, I have to start asking them questions. And so the differences between a picky eater and a problem feeder is number one, the range of foods. So if we start writing down all the foods that our kid eats and for the parents out there, just start writing them down. And usually if a parent can like name them and they're, they're counting their fingers, I mean, we know this is a problem. It's not picky, but typically a picky eater has a range of foods and a problem feeder has 20 foods or less. Okay. And so that's like a nice balance of, of foods. Um, you know, that, that we know, okay, this is really a problem and you should probably seek out a therapist. The second thing is food jags or food strikes. And what that is, is that if they eat, let's just say cheese pizza and they're eating cheese pizza every single day. And then one day they wake up and they're like, I'm not eating cheese pizza. And then you offer it to them the next day. And that was their favorite food and they're not eating it again. Mm -hmm. And then the next, if it's a picky eater, they'll usually regain that food in two weeks. Just, okay. But just like us, if we ate pizza every single day, right? And then we're like, we're out. But in two weeks, we'd be willing to try it again. But kids who are problem feeders, they don't regain that food. So that they will never eat cheese pizza again for the rest of their life. Or they'll go six months to a year without eating, eating cheese pizza. So that's a difference there. The third uh, difference is the way that they're able to tolerate foods on their plate. So let's say we put the cheese pizza onto their plate. A picky eater will be like, mom, I don't want that. Whereas a problem feeder has a huge behavior. There's a complete meltdown. We might not even get any food into that child during that mealtime because their, their system is so overloaded. And we all know what those look like. Um, and then the fourth thing is they eat, picky eaters eat a wide range of textures and a wide range of, of um, different foods from different food groups. Whereas a problem feeder, let's say, only eats carbs and they don't eat anything in the protein category or anything in the fruit and vegetable category. So those are kind of the differences between that. Now, handling the food strike um, is different for each type of child. So if it's a picky eater, then we just want to keep trying to reintroduce that food um, in fun ways, but reintroducing it. It's a problem feeder. We are going to have to get really creative to be able to try to, to engage that food again. Because what happens is that if you have a kid that's eating the same food over and over again, you're going to have that burnout. Because mm -hmm. we, we all experience that as adults. You eat the same eat oatmeal every single day. You're going to wake up one day and go, you know what? I'm not eating oatmeal today. It's just, yeah. this is the way that our bodies are. 
So I always tell parents, if, if you say, oh, this, you know, graham crackers is his thing. He has to have graham crackers three meals a day. I'm like, graham crackers is the first thing we're going to lose. So we right. better start figuring out ways to, you know, mix that up because we're going to lose that food. And once you lose one food, then it's going to be another and another. It just ends up being this because then you have only 10 foods to choose from and then you only have nine. And then so then it, you just start losing foods at a rapid rate. In fact, that's how a lot of my kids who are on two feedings now started as they started on a food jag and nobody took it seriously in the medical community. I mean, we are at a huge fault with that. You know, we have pediatricians all the time that says, oh, it's okay. Don't worry. They'll get that food back. Or it's okay. Don't worry. You know, all kids go through this or don't worry. You know, it's a picky eating stage and they'll grow out of it. And they've been told that by so many different medical professionals. And then the kid has five foods and then refuses those five and has to be on a tube. And um, which is, you know, has happens to so many of my clients. Yeah, that's and that's a lot harder to deal with and recover from. Absolutely. Coming up, Don answers our questions about rumination, constipation, swallowing issues, playing with your food and offers a whole bunch of great tips. You don't want to miss it. So stay with us. This week is Thanksgiving. It's a time to think about all of our blessings and all that we're thankful for. As special needs parents, sometimes our lists of gratitude can seem a little bit jaded. As I was thinking about things I was thankful for, it was things like, I'm thankful that last week when my daughter slammed her forehead into my face, I didn't get a broken nose. But really, we do have so much to be thankful for, even in desperate circumstances, if we can find the blessings and look on the bright side, science has shown we'll be happier. Hi, my name is Catherine and I'm from Virginia. I am um, the mother of two boys, JP who is three and Louis who is six months old, both of whom have a genetic disorder called ATRX syndrome. I'm most thankful that in 2015, The Lord blessed us with peace in what could have easily been a painfully anxious and heartbreaking pregnancy and birth of our second special needs little boy. What was especially sweet was the way he honored all the desires of my heart for our Louise birth. I felt safe and confident throughout my labor. All of my treasured support people were present. I even birthed in the exact room I had hoped for, the one two dear friends had also birthed their second babies in. And Louis was born on Easter Eve, the night of a gloriously full moon, just as I had hoped. It was all so beautiful and precious, and I am thankful to have welcomed my boy with a joyful heart. Uh, My name is Catherine Sierras, and uh, my son Wesley is two and a half and he has Down syndrome. I am most thankful for the relationship that he and his brother have formed over the last year. His, bo- his brother was born at the end of the end of um, end of last year, and so uh, this year, just seeing that relationship grow has just been um, really amazing to see. Alicia shared that she was most thankful that this year she and her family could celebrate the holidays at home rather than in the NICU. Jessica wrote, I am thankful that even with being poked and prodded and wearing a helmet and being so frustrated, 
He wants to do things and tries so hard but can't. That my baby is happy, sweet, funny, and adorable. Research shows that people who cultivate gratitude get a boost in happiness and optimism. They feel more connected to other people, they're better liked and have more friends, and they're more likely to help others. They even sleep better and get fewer headaches. If you need some help cultivating gratitude in your own heart, I've got some good news. Starting on December 1st and running through December 12th, Bringing Up Betty will be teaming up with some of our favorite brands. Betty's favorite toys, our family's favorite gear, a few breaks for mom and dad, and offering them to you in a giveaway. 12 days of giveaways. Be sure to check the website, Facebook, Instagram, or sign up for our newsletter for all the updates. Entering will be quick and easy, so you can get right back to enjoying the holidays and your family. Look for all of the details at bringingupbetty.com. And now, back to the blab. See, we're getting a lot of comments and questions. I can't yeah. read them at the same so time. But... Another, here's another one. Any experience with rumination and how to manage that behavior during mealtime? Yes. Okay. So rumination is when, um, we'll just say a child uh, swallows something and then it comes back up into their mouth. And some kids want to spit it out. Some kids want to swallow again. Some parents are just completely grossed out by it. Um, but it's a natural response. We all have some rumination. I mean, if you look at the end of your water bottle, you know, you have a little bit of backwash in there somewhere. Um, but when it becomes more and more of a problem, um, it can lead to what's called GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And it can actually start to, you know, have difficulties with the bacteria inside of the mouth. So there's different techniques for rumination and even if they start spitting. So there are different techniques that will have a spit bucket so that they can actually spit that out because sometimes there's so much acid in, mm -hmm. in the food. So they swallow it and then, you know, they may have some reflux and now it's just a mouthful of maybe a little bit of leftover meat, but lots of acid. And, you know, there's force feeding, feeding programs that says you have to swallow that again. Well, you know what? I'm not going to trust you as a feeder and I'm not going to enjoy that food. And I'm probably going to lose that food because the last time I ate it, it tasted like acid. Um, and I just feel like it's almost abusive to force a child to swallow their stomach acid, you know, right. again, when they really want to spit it out. Um, but we need to be able to add social skills in there as well. So if it's a child with special needs, a bucket is preferred over a napkin just because okay. sometimes they don't have the ability to wipe and be able to throw that away uh, or a bib like a lot of parents go to the bib and so that they can keep wiping um so it just depends but if i see a child that has a rumination problem that's one of the first things that i will contact is their gi specialist and see you know are they on acid reflux meds you know when was the last time that they were checked um you know the child's gained 20 pounds since then um looks like we probably need to have a different prescription uh, maybe we need to try a different medication and so that's where you know a team comes into play to be able to help a child with you know se severe feeding issues like that okay and what about um like when a child refuses to swallow like they just chew and chew and chew and chew and chew and chew <laughs> Right. So um, chewing is a milestone and it's an art. And what happens is we need to be able to get kids to be able to chew for a munch chew like this mm -hmm. and a rotary chew. 
So I always have props. (laughs) So um, let's get it this way. So basically when, when we have kids who have difficulties chewing, they usually can do a munch chew, but then when we put something here and we usually want to put it on the back part of um, the teeth, kind of like what you're doing in therapy right now. Mm -hmm. And so that they can bite down, but they also have to be able to move their tongue. So if we work on chewing exactly lateralizing, Mm -hmm. we have to be able to work on the tongue because the tongue has to be able to go over, grab that food and pull it and then put it on the other side in order to chew again. So Mm -hmm. if we have kids that aren't able to lateralize their tongue, what else are they going to do? They're just going to keep doing this. And then eventually they just want to spit it out because they don't know what to do with it. Um, Or they, you know, just keep chewing for hours because they, they can't, don't have the tongue ability to be able to move that. Um, So we want to make sure that we have tongue lateralization in order to be able to chew. So that's one of the things that, you know, speech pathologists assess is that, you know, we might, chewing might not even be a goal right now because we can't lateralize the tongue. And in fact, it might not even be a safe goal because they can't lateralize the tongue. If you can't move your tongue to be able to protect your airway, you're going to choke. So, and then once a child chokes, there's research on this too, that once a child chokes, they can experience um, post-traumatic stress disorder and refuse to eat. And when they did brain studies of Vietnam vets and kids who have actually had a choking experience, it was equal. Wow. So, you know, think about, you know, wanting to try a new food, choking on that, you know, and then, and then who gave you that food? If it's mom, that, that trust is starting to, you know break apart. If it's me, a feeding therapist, I trust is going to start breaking apart. So um, chewing is is really important, but we also need to be able to know what foods to try. So I liked more multiple foods like veggie sticks in order to be able to put that there instead of other harder foods. Um, Or we try um, foods that are going to increase saliva. So have like salty foods, how you were talking about the pretzel, Mm -hmm. Um, because sometimes the saliva production will help with tongue lateralization. It just depends. So it really is important to be able to pick the right food as well as pick the right technique to be able to help the chin. And if they're having a hard time with um, the lateral movement of their tongue, like this is something we're working on with Betty right now. Mm, and yeah. I know you can't like be super specific, but like she, when we put things in, she'll move her tongue over. But then while we're eating food, she mm-hmm. is just munching. She's not doing right. the rotary chewing. Right. So I have a hard time figuring out how to encourage the lateral tongue movement during meal time. Like we do the little exercises, but it's like, yeah, I'll do it now. But then. Mm-hmm eat it's not going to happen as much so my recommendation for for kids who have a hard time carrying over a therapeutic skill to food is the best way to practice is with food so what i say is we do breakfast lunch and dinner and then you have two therapeutic meal times so that could be with a therapist or that could be you know away from the dinner table so a therapeutic meal time would consist of a, a snack so let's just say these veggie sticks and so we're working on those skills and, and she sees on her plate, you know, just veggie sticks, five veggie sticks. So it's a way for her to go, okay, I'm only eating those five veggie sticks. Those, this is a technique I'm working on. I don't have to do a whole meal and mom's expecting me to do a whole meal with a variety of different textures. Oh, we've got some, you know, chicken nuggets and then we have some you know, watermelon because those are all different, you know, right. textures. And so we're just going to be focusing on one and just working on that one skill. 
And then most importantly, you mom have to have a plate with five veggie sticks, giving that feedback too, right? Um, and then also having a mirror there in front so that the child can be able to see what they're doing so that they can also get that feedback. Because what happens is that if we're not giving our kids the visual of us doing it or them seeing in the mirror, they're not being able to motor plan that effectively. Think of like, okay, we're all going to do a dance routine, but we're not going to have a mirror in front. We're, we're going to do that dance routine really poorly because even if we practice it, because we're not getting that visual feedback. Right. So that's okay. a, a, a general example of being able to transfer that. And then you start to transfer it. So at, if you're doing veggie sticks at snack, well, then we want to have veggie sticks at lunch because she's already been successful with veggie sticks. Right. And then, you know, you might want to have a few veggie sticks at dinner because she's been successful. And not only her, everybody gets veggie sticks. Right. So she can see that feedback. And so instead of you saying, remember, you have to lateralize your tongue, you're eating <laughs> that veggie stick and then dad's eating that veggie stick. And so she's seeing everyone doing that so that right. she it encourages her to be able to um, keep practicing. OK, yeah, that's good. Um, let's see. Did we have another question? Yeah, I thought I saw Maybe something. Not. Too. Let's see, It's hard to thank you, everyone, for being here, by the way, and, and making comments. Yeah, this is fun. Um, oh, and I did put a link in. I'll put another one in um, to Easy Peasy if you're not familiar with the oh, thank you. trays because they're just so great. Thank you. Um, what about um, playing with food? Do you encourage that? Good it, question. Does it happen during mealtime or do we have special time set aside to play with food to explore those textures? That is, that's probably one of the, the questions I get asked most often by parents because they don't want to play with food. Mm -hmm. um, and here are some of the complaints. Usually parents are like, you know, I don't want to make a mess. And so one of the ways that you can do it is on a happy mat um, or do it outside. Make it like some kind of a technique um, or an outing. Maybe you do it at the park. You don't do it at home. Maybe you don't do it at the dining room table. Maybe you do it outside on the patio. Um, another is waste, food waste uh, that I get complaints about a lot. And again, when we're talking about food play, we're not talking about a whole roast beef. <laughs> we're talking about, you know, a couple tablespoons of whatever it is that you want. So if it's, you know, right now, you know, with a lot of kids, we're working on foods for Thanksgiving. So if it's, you know, corn or, you know, green bean casserole, you don't have to make a whole entire casserole, but just get a little bit of green beans and, and be able to play with it and crunch it and move. Um, if it's going to be turkey, you know, let them, you know, have a couple slices of turkey, be able to smell it, play with it, make, you know, um, squishies with it, you know, just be able to get the sensory aspects of that. It doesn't have to be a lot of food. And the time that it takes to be able to give them that food exploration and that sensory ability to be able to play with food and just your one-on-one -on -one time um, will go so far into being able to try new foods in the future that might not actually require them to have the sensory aspects of having you know food play but being able to be allowed to play with their food is really important and in most cultures we're allowed to play with foods you know i'm hispanic and so you know you're playing with the food when you're trying to get that tortilla and, and get those you know beans um in other cultures they don't use utensils and so they're being able to explore that and they have the lowest picky eating rates so we want to be able to encourage, you know, kids to, to be able to explore their foods. And it's usually not years and years that we're doing this. It's usually right. a short period of time, especially when they're starting to be picky or you see, you know, that that's probably a behavior that's starting to slowly but surely happen. So it's a short time frame. It's not something that, you know, if you're with a therapist that's working on playing with their food for years, you know, 
we need to move on from that. Yeah. Um, so sorry, you may have touched on this, but um, do so the the playtime should happen outside of mealtime? Yes. And that's when we're, you know, we're trying these new foods. So let's say we're, we're getting ready for, you know, Christmas and you want your kids to explore cranberry sauce. So mm -hmm. the, the time to explore cranberry sauce is not when the in-laws right. and all extended <laughs> family are there while you're putting cranberry sauce on your kid's plate. So we want to get a can of cranberry sauce and take it outside and just kind of play with it for a little bit and say, you know, hey, we're going to have Christmas soon and this is going to be there. And, you know, and then take that cranberry sauce and put it on your own nose and, you know, just kind of have some fun with it so that when cranberry sauce is placed on their plate, you know, they're not screaming and you're dealing with behaviors yeah. from the whole entire family that hasn't seen your kid in a year. So it's being able to prepare them from, for a sensory experience um, and be able to, to have some fun with it. And I usually like to do it not at a mealtime, but, you know, or if you're going to have cranberry sauce that day, you know, do it earlier in the day and then have it at, at okay. the time. And then um, any, any tips for encouraging those boundaries? Like we were in the backyard playing with this and I was painting my face with it and now it's mealtime and that's not acceptable. Oh, right, right, right. Like, now the in-laws are here. Yes, right. <laughs> so this like, is hey, what we do with cranberry sauce. Let's all be put off here. Um, yeah. So what I what I use is language use, right? Just how we use um, our own language for you know it's bath time. When mm -hmm. we say it's bath time, it's bath time. That's that's what it is. Yeah. If it's you know we're doing sensory time, we're playing with this new food. That's what it is. Then we have it's meal time, which is very different. Yeah. So it's being able to have time set up throughout the day in, in a child's routine, you know, that we do every single day, you know, it's time to read, it's time to take a nap, it's time to go to the bathroom, we have all these set times. And this just is another time set that's placed in there. Um, you know, because I get that question, too. I'm like, well, does your kid, you know, you know, play with bath toys, you know, in, at home. Right. Yes. It's like, but those specific bath toys are not going to be at every bath time. Right. So it's being able to, you know, explore that language and being able to utilize that language in a, a routine. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense for sure. Thanks. All right. We have another question. Okay. Any good cup recommendations for a toddler who has swallowing issues, not aspiration, just reluctance to take much liquid orally? Yes. And I wish I had one with me. My, all my feeding tools are, are not with me um, at this moment. But if you go to talktools.com, T-A-L-K-T-O-O-L-S.com, they have a variety of different cups there. Um, one of my favorite cups is called the Nosy Cup or the Cutout Cup. And what it is, it's a cup. I have one. Do you want me to oh, grab it? Oh, sure. Okay, okay, I'll get it. Great. Hey, that's my favorite. Just a second. Um, and basically what that is, is that it has, it has this indention that's cut out so that when a child um, takes a drink, their nose can go into the cup and they can actually see the liquid. And what that does is that it keeps kids' um, necks into the right position. So this position with drinking the chin down is a safer position because it basically our airway is protected. When we take a drink and we drink this way and we're tilting our head back, for those of you who are just listening to this on audio, and we tilt our head back, we are opening our airway. And so when we open our airway, the chances of that liquid going into the lungs is really high. So we want to be able to keep our kids' chins low. So think of Gatorade commercial, tilting the head back 
bad. Uh, drinking forward is is better when we are talking about swallowing difficulties. You have the cup to be able to show. Oh, yes. perfect. Okay, so this is Toctol's one ounce cup. And so you drink out of the, do you mind putting it to your lips? You drink out of that, oh. Oh, yep, that side. So, yep, so that, <laughs> see. Like this was yes. a while ago. We haven't so used it in a while. That, exactly. So <laughs> see how she can keep her head lower and be able to still get to the last drop of the cup. So there's different sizes. That's a one ounce. Good job demonstrating. And then there's a two ounce mm-hmm. one. And then there's a six ounce one, I believe. And so we start with the one ounce to be able to get them to be able to what we call grade. And that's to grade the cup to get the right amount of the liquids to come out. And then we go to the two ounce. That's a little bit more. And we start to teach them how to grade that way. And I introduced that cup six months at six months of age. Okay. And um, yeah. the the negative of the cup is that it's plastic. And a lot of our kids who are really picky can taste that plastic. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you have to try it with, with your kid because it's hard to, to be able to get past that plastic taste. Yeah. And I see that you are making a cup for easy. Yes, we are. Which in the future, <laughs> you will see a wonderful cup. That's That's my favorite. But until then, that's oh, my favorite. That they used a medicine cup to begin yes, with? Yes. So, um, and that's really good too. So what a medicine cup is, is it's a smaller cup. Um, the advantage of that is it's almost like a shot glass. You you tilt right. it and you get a small amount. So it helps with drinking. But what happens is that even with the medicine cup, you have to kind of tilt your head back, right? Unless that medicine uh-huh. cup has a little cut out, but you're going to have to tilt your head right. back. And even though it's that's a great technique, and I've used it before for to kind of do um, small amounts to be able to help the child with their swallow, we're still also teaching that motor response of them tilting their head back. So it's a great um, it's a great technique for short term. And go mom yeah. for doing that. Um, but then you want to try to expand that to um, to the nosy cup to be able to keep that safe swallow intact. Because once you start, you know, getting into this habit, you start taking pills that way and and drinking quickly, right. and it just really can put our kids at risk for choking. Okay. Um, the other thing we've used is like the honey oh. bear. Do you recommend? Honey yeah. Too? So um, the advantages of the honey bear. Look at you. You have everything. That's great. The advantages of the honey bear <laughs> is that you, the feeder, can squeeze and have that liquid come up the straw so that the child may only have to suck this much to be able to get it. Um, I use a honey bear a lot with some of my kids with cerebral palsy, um, some of my kids with Down syndrome who have really low tone in their face. And so they're not able to have a good suck. And we want to teach the suck. Um, but if the child has a difficulty swallowing, I will usually revert just to the uh, nosy cup. But again, every kid's different, yeah. but I do use a honey bear right. and I do like it. Um, yeah. One of the. Obviously a cup is yes. ideal because that's what, right. more, you know, most people use. Like if you go to. Right. And we want to, I mean, that's the goal, right, is to have our kids be the most independent as possible in the least restrictive environment without our assistance. And so, you know, if the honey bear does that, then it's making our goal. Um, if if right. it's a cup and it's making our goal, if it's a medicine cup, we're making our goal. So it's being able and to reassess, though, always to say, oh, we've been using the medicine cup for two months. So maybe it's time to change or we've been using the honey bear for six months. Maybe it's time to change and constantly reassess and have someone to help you with that. Yeah, I did like it because it. Yeah, like it, it gives that that 
feedback yes. immediately. They get it. They get a little bit of liquid yes. in their mouth and then they great. Oh, and I yes, it's a great so, uh, straw drinking technique. Yeah. To, to and start. I love any of those um, options over a sippy cup. So it's wonderful. <laughs> yes, drink from a straw or drink from a cup. Do you want to talk about the downsides of sippy oh, cups? Oh, sure. Controversial. Here we go. So uh, <laughs> advantages of the sippy cup is, you know, it doesn't spill. Disadvantages of the sippy cup is that when some when our kids um, and just if you're using a sippy, a sippy, there's no judgments, but look at the sippy cup so you can kind of see this. If they're using their teeth to, to bite the edge and and it's it's tore up, those little bits of plastic are going into your child's um, gastrointestinal system. And so I'm not a fan of plastic cups. Um, I'm drinking out of a glass, <laughs> um, but you know, with kids, it's hard with glass. Um, so what happens with the sippy cup is that our tongues end up going forward. So we end up doing this with the drinking and that's not how we drink liquids. So um, all those new water bottles that are coming out that have to do with you know the sippies at the end, even for adults, is that that is that's basically pushing out our oral structures. It's pushing out our kids' teeth, so the chances of them having orthodontic issues are are much higher. Um, it it contributes to speech impediments as well as lisping and other things. And there's no sound in the English language besides a th sound that has your tongue going out. That. That's the only one that's uh -huh. that. Um, so all other sounds are inside the mouth. And so it also keeps our kids at a lower developmental age um, as far as their oral structures. And so they're not able to make all their other feeding milestones because the sippy cup is kind of holding them back a little bit. So I always say it's not a bad thing uh, if it's used for short term, like if you're in the car, but then it's only in the car. Um, or we hydrate our kids before we go into the car and uh, we eliminate the right. sippy cups completely. Okay. So straws definitely. Straws and then drinking then. from an open cup. And when we're looking at developmental milestones, our kids are supposed to be able to start drinking from an open cup at six months of age. So when I see four-year-olds on sippy cups, you know, we're, we're yeah. three and a half years behind. And so um, okay. then I'm always like, well, what's their speech patterns like? What's, you know, what's their feeding patterns like? Um, we yeah. kind of get stuck in, in, in holding our kids back. Okay. Um, we have another question about constipation. Oh. Um, <laughs> ideas for managing constipation naturally with diet, trying to wean off of Miralax. Yes. Also alternatives for thickeners um, other than thicket. Oh, wow. Um, Educated mom or therapist. Good yeah. for you guys. Uh, so let's talk about constipation. Uh, I never thought when I came in this field that I would talk so much about poop, <laughs> but it really is a very good indicator, you know, of our bodily functions and especially for our kids. So what, what we want to do and why physicians prescribe Miralax is that we're trying to get our body, the child's bodies back into normal function. And I always think we want to try to do that with food as much as possible. So to be able to help with a poop, we always do pea foods with the letter P. Pears, prunes, plums, papaya, pineapple, all pea food to be able to help with that process uh, to decrease constipation. Um, and we also want to be able to make sure that our kids are hydrated. And so the the formula for that, and it changes a little bit with um, with uh, with kids, but here's a great example is you want to have 
the, your weight divided in half, and that's how many ounces that you're supposed to drink. So if you're 100 pounds, you divide that in half to make easy math, which is 50 mm -hmm. pounds, right? And so that's 50 ounces that you're supposed to drink each day. And so another reason, again, don't work for Life Factory either, but uh, <laughs> Life Factory has ounces on the sides of their um, glasses. And so it's easy for adults to be able to measure that. And we need to do that with kids too. So they have smaller glasses for that. Um, but we need to be able to measure ounces and how many ounces our kids um, are. We take them to the doctor, we get their weight. And so we have that accessible to us. And so, you know, 50 pound child, divide that in half, 25 pounds, 25 ounces water a day. Um, and that does not include teas, sodas, uh, fruit juice. It's strictly 100% water. So if you want to stick some lemon in there or some, you know, some, you know, to kind of have that kind of fruit infusion, it's fine if it's natural, but you want it to be water. And then depending upon where you live, you increase that by 10 ounces. So if you're in Arizona, you increase that by 10 more ounces. So if you're in a heater right now, it's just our first snow here in Colorado. So we have heaters going, um, you increase that by 10 ounces so that we make sure that it'll decrease the constipation. Okay. Um, okay, so I think there was another question about, or maybe no, maybe no, there wasn't. Yes, Jessica, oh, the so much thickeners. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um thickener oh, oh thickener oh yes so so with thickeners the pros of thickeners is that you can you know buy a product that can thicken something very quickly and why we use thickeners is because if i'm drinking this water this water is really thin and it's going to go down my throat really quickly if i'm drinking um, if I'm sucking pudding through a straw, that pudding is going to go down a little bit slower. If I'm sucking mashed potatoes, it's going to go down slower or a milkshake, it's going to go down slower. So what happens is that my throat muscles, we can use this, my throat muscles move in this waveform to push down that water or push down that food. And so if you have a child with some low tone, that is not going to move as fast so it's called peristalsis is the fancy term. And so that also can cause back end constipation because the peristalsis starts here at the throat and starts to move all the way down. It goes all the way down to our intestines and then out our anus. And that movement keeps moving that nutrition and then end up being that you know um, bowel movement down. If you have problems here with your tongue and your throat muscles and usually kids who can't lateralize their tongue, that's where the peristaltic movement starts. So. So we're starting here at the mouth and going all the way down to the digestive tract. Um, so what thickener does is it makes that liquid go down a little bit slower so that our, our bodies have more time to be able to catch that and kind of move that down. The con of the thickener is, is that you have to get more nutrition in because it's thick. It's not hydrating the kid's cells. Thus, it causes constipation because you don't have a lot of hydration in there. So you want to, you know, if if the child has to be on thickened liquids because of their severe swallow, you want to have a lot of foods, um, specifically fruits and vegetables in their diet to be able to help add that um, extra hydration into their body. Okay. Did um, did you have any ideas about natural? Oh, thickeners? yes. Sorry. So um, that's okay. So there's there's a variety of different things out there. And if you want to go more natural, you know, there's, you know, 
the different cornstarches or different oatmeals. And um, but again, any time that we thicken something, it's it's decreasing that liquid. So what I try to do is I, as a feeding therapist, I try to make those goals with our with the parents that we work with and say, okay, mom, we're on thickened liquids. Um, you know, let's say it's pudding thick, or there's different types of ranges of it. So it's nectar thick, pudding thick. If it's nectar thick, I try to use natural fruits and vegetables to be able to thicken it. So, and you can make your own juices and, you know, Vitamix blender or a regular blender to make things thicker and just add in a little bit of water. If it's a pudding thick, that's when, you know, you, you pretty much have to use the traditional um, thickening agents um, to be able to help with that. But if a child is just on a nectar thick liquid, um, we, I usually try to do it naturally. Now with that said, for the therapists out there, as well as parents, this is another thing that you have to reassess constantly because even thickening a child's liquid is changing the anatomical response to food. And so if it sounds so passive being able to just put a child on a thickened liquid, but it really I mean, for those of you that are out there with the kids with constipation, we are changing a whole dynamic of someone's lifestyle by thickening a liquid. And so I always reassess. I always try thin liquids um, when the kid is at their best. So if your kid is, you know, really strong and motivated in the morning, try thin liquids in the morning. If they fatigue over the day, then start to thicken their liquids throughout the day. Um, if they're rock stars at night or right before uh, they're about to go to bed and they have all this great energy, uh, we want to try some thin liquids there. So we want to reassess uh, the situation consistently and make that be a question that you're asking your feeding therapist over and over. Let's reassess. Let's reassess. Let's reassess. Because you know, there's plenty of times that I get kids that have been on a thickened liquid for a year and, you know, we reassess and they're totally fine. But, you know, it's, right. but it's like a medication, you know, you're, you're fearful yeah. because you don't want it to go down into, yeah. um, you know, our kids' lungs. We want to protect that airway. Right. So I know we have a few parents that were watching that um, have not yet started feeding therapy, but they know that that's coming up. Yeah. So what should parents ask their therapists like as they're getting started and, and what can they expect during a feeding therapy oh, session? Wonderful. Uh, great question. So I think the first one is to ask the therapist before you go there, if they're comfortable having you in the therapy session. Now there are those kids that I've seen that, you know, I'd love to have mom involved, but when mom's there, the kid just won't pay attention. They want to be in her lap or they want to breastfeed or they want, you know, they're, they're not paying attention mm -hmm. in the therapy session for whatever reason. And, and, and I completely understand that, but for the parents to be able to have the best outcome in feeding therapy is if they're in there because they're a primary feeder. So it, I don't, we don't make any gains if the child only eats with me and doesn't eat with mom or dad or grandma. Mm -hmm. So, but there's a lot of therapists right. out there and, it, and it's not saying anything bad about them is that there's just a lot of therapists out there that just aren't comfortable having parents in the therapy session. And so they just mm -hmm. don't want to have them or there's clinics out there for a liability standpoint. They don't have the therapists um, have the parents come in. Um, but again, I think we lose the, the most important feeder in this whole session is, and, yeah. and then we're trying to gain that trust. So if I'm able to feed a child with a spoon and then I give that spoon to mom and the child doesn't eat, how, I mean, what's one hour of therapy a week going to do? It's not going to change anything. Right. So, um, we have to have the parents involvement 
And, and plus, and it's really important to have that involvement because if I'm about ready to you know, try a new food and the parent is like, oh, they're allergic to that food or we haven't tried a prune right. before, or I mean, there's a lot mm -hmm. of feedback that goes in. And part of the therapeutic um, process is for me to be able to pass baton to mom or to dad or to grandma or nanny, whoever it is, is going to be that primary feeder and be able in the, in the feeding therapy session to reassess that as well and be able to give tips and tricks. So the first thing I would say is to see if, if you're allowed in the therapy session. And then the second thing I would say is that bring the plates, the spoons, the cups, the bottles, the sippy cups, um, into the therapy session so that the, the therapist can evaluate all of your products. Um, and um, and that's a, that gives me a lot of great indicators. So a parent will bring a sippy cup and they're like, oh no, it's okay. Cause I, you know, took this out and I've adapted this and, or, you know, we've, we've, we use duct tape on the edge of this spoon so he can hold it better. It, it gives me more information about what I'm working with. Um, and then the third thing I would say is to ask them specifically um, what their continuing education is and what their what techniques are certified in. Um, it, there's a lot of therapists out there that, you know, have only been certified in one approach. And, you know, our kids are not cookie cutters. It's not one size fits all. You have to have a wide range of different techniques and, and, and continuing education underneath your belt to be able to service a vast population. So um, I love it when parents interview me on the phone before I ever you know, see their kid. They're just like, where'd you go to school? And I'm like, oh, let me tell you all about myself. Like it's, you know, it, and then I, I really respect that because, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in your kid's mouth. I'm going to be feeding them or I'm coming into your home. Guess what? I'm going to be at your dinner table. So I think it's really important for parents to, to interview their therapist and make sure that they're a right fit. And then lastly, I would say, make sure that if there's no love connection between the therapist and the child, move on. And, you know, there's been several times in my career that, you know, I'm Latina, I'm loud, I'm touchy, you know, I move a lot. <laughs> and, and for some kids, it's, that's not the right fit. And as much as I try to like, you know, keep my hands together and keep my voice down, it's just, that's not a natural thing for me to do. And so then that love connection is not going to be there. And we want them to trust me and I want to be able to get into their mouth. And so that's going to be really difficult. So um, I have a yeah. lot of parents who say, oh, I just I just don't think that the therapist loves my kid. And as as ridiculous as that does sound, you know, because, you know, you may not be there to you know, for your kid to be loved or there to be taught. I mean, I work with like I just, you know, I could easily adopt most of my caseload <laughs> because it's you just you you know, you love them. You just you feed. And that's one of the beautiful things about feeding is that you're you're, that's one of the ways to show love is to explore foods and to feed. And, you know, if you don't see that compassion in the therapist, it's just, you know, we have to move on and, and try to find another therapist that'll work with you. Great. And then um, any, any tips about what a parent should expect during a feeding therapy session? Yes. Oh, good one. Um, so this is my, this is my, my biggest tip. If your parent if your therapist gives you homework. So, and that being said is I don't have, you know, here's five handouts and I expect these filled out, but the next time you come, it'll right. be like, okay, hey, we're trying um, the nosy cup in the therapy session. It's like, hey mom, I'd like you to go onto Talk Tools website. I'd like you to buy a nosy cup and then bring that to the next therapy session. That's your homework. Mm -hmm. So you're leaving the therapy session going, okay, I have a plan, I've got to buy this. And then the, then the next therapy session, you know, like, oh, she's drinking really well with it. Okay, make sure that she has her lips 
onto the cup. And so your homework is, mom, is, you know, do this during snack time and make sure her lips are on the cup. I don't care how much she drinks, make sure her lip is on the cup. That's a homework assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or it would be, you know, okay, I want you to monitor how much she's drinking because we're trying to tackle this constipation. That's a homework assignment. Um, I want I want to be able to make my goals that I have written down on paper saying that I expect the child to reach XYZ. And the only way that I can make that happen is if there's carryover. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that they have homework. Um, And then you want to be able to feel like your voice is being heard. And, and I think making sure that that time is scheduled into the therapeutic session um, is really important. So I usually will say I have a 50 minute therapy session and the last 10 minutes is parent, you know, discussion so that we can answer any questions. And then what happens is that you as a mom don't have to feel like you have to send an email after the therapy session. I don't have to feel like I have to, you know, respond to it. We, we have that scheduled time to be able to discuss it. And I think that's really important. Great. All right. Well, um, did you have any other things that you were hoping to talk about or discuss with us? Yes, actually I I do. Um, um, I wanted to, because I know uh, through Twitter, a couple of my feeding therapist friends were coming on and I wanted to show our, our product that's going to be coming out soon. And this is called the mini mat. And this is um, going to be able to be transferable. So it's going to be in a clear pouch so that parents can put this into um, their purse. And so it's going to be more of a travel mat. Uh, which still has a suction function and everything in it, um, and as well as being able to fit onto most high chairs. And I also wanted to talk about um, the differences between a feeding disorder and a swallowing disorder, mm-hmm. because I kind of got that asked on Twitter to make sure that we discussed that too, mm-hmm. because um, parents are saying that their child has been diagnosed with a swallowing disorder, but they don't feed. And so I just wanted to clarify mm-hmm. that. Okay. So basically a feeding disorder from ashes says is that a child has problems gathering food, sucking it, chewing it, or swallowing it. And that's a feeding disorder. And so it sounds very similar to a swallowing disorder, but it, it also gives us more information about which therapy that we're supposed to go to. So if mm-hmm. you have a child that's not able to get the food from a fine motor standpoint and put it into their mouth, that's not speech. That's OT. If once they get into the mouth and they have difficulties sucking or chewing or swallowing, that's traditionally a speech language pathologist. So sometimes you have a whole team go team um, that's in there, which would be, you know, a GI doctor, a primary care physician or a pediatrician and a speech pathologist an occupational therapist and a dietitian to be able to all work as this collaborative team to be able to work on that. And then a swallowing disorder is any problem in that step. So we break it down as an oral phase, which is basically in the mouth. So if you know rumination is an issue, chewing is an issue, um, keeping food in the mouth, drooling, um, you know, being able to not lateralize their tongue or their tongue sticking out all the time, mm-hmm. that's all the oral phase. Then we have pharyngeal phase, and the pharyngeal phase is that the throat muscles are not able to kind of have that peristalsis. 
um, or there's coughing or choking or gagging, that is the pharyngeal phase. And then there's the esophageal phase, the esophagus going down. And that is the phase that a speech pathologist can't assess. It has to be through x-ray, through what's called the modified barium swallow study. But if your child has issues with the oral phase or the pharyngeal phase, that's our area of expertise. And we're able to kind of get in there and assist. We have a lot of kids who have feeding disorders and swallowing disorders, and some kids who just have swallowing problems. They could, they'll eat anything. They eat a wide range of foods, but they choke every single time. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, that's just a swallowing disorder. So hopefully that kind of, um, separates the two. Yeah. Any tips on, gosh, as parents, you know, it's like, we're encouraged, like you have to be your kid's advocate. And when there's yes. so many different people involved and ideally it's like, you have this team that like would meet together and have the same purpose, yes. mission, but in reality, that very seldom occurs. Yes. Any, any um, tips on getting like all of your people on board with like the same treatment plan or communicating different information, different recommendations between yes. and therapists? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I love the moms that come into the office that have a binder this thick that are just like, here is my daughter's history because I know I'm going to get all the accurate information. I know that I can say, hey, can I have copies of these four reports and then put them into the file so then I can be able to communicate effectively with you know the appropriate medical team. Um, it's really hard for therapists to be able to attend, you know, the IEP meetings, unless you're just getting that from the school and nine times out of 10, you're not getting feeding therapy in the school system. Right. Um, so, um, to be able to have outside therapists come into an IEP is, you know, pulling teeth. So it's usually over email. Um, I prefer to be able to do Skype meetings, um, or be able to talk to them on the phone, or we can do a conference call to be able to get the whole team involved. And it usually has to be the one person that is kind of taking the lead. Um, nine times out of 10, it's a speech pathologist, but asking them to be able to take on that role is a huge responsibility because of time management issues, depending upon your insurance and et cetera. So then it usually ends up being the parent that ends up having to do that. Um, but I think it's really important for us as therapists uh, to be able to advocate for them because most of the pediatricians don't understand how serious it is. Um, and so when I'm in a conference call with a pediatrician, they're just like, really, come on, all kids are picky. And I have to throw out statistics, like actually 5% of the children I work with will starve themselves. And I've gone through more, you know, children funerals than I care to, you know, tell anyone here on this show, um, because people don't take it seriously and kids won't eat. And it's, it's a disorder and that's why we're here. And, um, you know, I have to really explain to them that, you know, 8% of the pediatric population in the United States have a feeding issue per ASHA and, um, or a communication disorder and a feeding issue at the same time, which makes it even more difficult because we mm -hmm. don't know why the child's choking or, or swallowing. So I have to kind of like rattle off all these stuff, you know, that 1.3 billion people in the world have disabilities that include swallowing disorders. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is a huge population, but we still have a medical community that, that don't take um, picky eating seriously. So it's being able to advocate for them, um, being able to all be in on the same team and and also to have everyone everyone feel like their voice is heard, but most importantly, that the parent um, 
really collaborates with what the diagnosis is. And so that may be, you know, for example, you know, your daughter, it, it may just be the spoon. It may, it may not be a true swallowing issue. It may be the spoon, right? But if you're thinking it's a spoon and I'm thinking she has a severe swallowing problem, we're stuck. Yeah. We're not, we're not a collaborative team. Yeah. Um, and so we all have to really agree on that diagnosis and agree on that treatment plan, which is, you know, a big part of advocating. Yes. Great. Do you have, did you have any other topics you wanted to touch on? Oh, I could talk all day. I'm a yeah, <laughs> Um, I, well, let me just advocate a little bit for my profession. Uh, there's a lot of people, especially parents, um, who say, oh, you know what, I have been seeing a psychologist for, you know, my child's feeding disorder. I've been seeing a social worker for my child's feeding disorder. And, um, and just kind of separating the differences between, you know, an eating disorder and a feeding disorder, you know, bulimia, anorexia, you know, maybe our kids are having some rumination or maybe they're spitting up some, but it's not a true eating disorder. You know, these kids, you know, have some medical complications that um, causes, you know, feeding to be very challenging. And I think it's really important to be able to have um, a, a group of people that you can go to. And one of my uh, favorite places to send parents is a place called uh, Feeding Matters. And so it's feedingmatters.org. And that's a group of parents who have kids that are on, you know, G-tubes or severe feeding challenges or, you know, are, are, have been force fed. And anyways, it's a group of parents who started it. It was called Popsicle before, and uh, it's now called Feeding Matters. And they have national conferences and they get the best of the best in speech pathology and occupational therapy to be there to give conferences to educate parents. And so I think it's really important to be able to um, you know, have a group that, um, that, that is able to kind of give support. And then you're part of a whole bunch of face group, um, yeah. groups, right. That kind of talk about that because it's, I think it's important for parents to say, oh, I found this great therapist or I found this great mm -hmm. pediatrician. And, and really it's like, you know, that's the best, uh, marketing that you can ever get is being able to, you know, you know, hear it from another mom. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I can literally talk your all's ear off forever. So <laughs> we can stop at any time. Um, did anyone else who's here have any questions? So you can just type them in the little chat bar. Oh, lots of comments. Thanks, guys. And thanks for all the love in the corner. Yeah. Yay, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And oh, thank you. Um, I, I, this is really a passion of mine is being able to educate parents and therapists. And, um, and I, and I think it's, it's going to make such a huge effect in our kids and for the kids that follow behind us, um, in therapy is being able to really get it out there and, and let people know that, you know, feeding struggles exist and that it does take a team and it takes a lot of time and energy on the parents part to be able to drive to the appointments and get the right tools and do the education and, you know, take the time to be on, you know, social media like this to learn that. And, you know, I'm so grateful for you guys being here and, and being advocates for your kids. Yeah. Well, thank you for all that you do and for being here with us. Um, it looks like we got a couple more people that just talked yes. in. We're oh. about to finish up, but um, we will post the replay on both of our websites um, and just, 
to reiterate, um, I'm Sarah Evans. I host the podcast Bringing Up Betty and... I'm Don Winkleman, and I'm a speech language pathologist and feeding specialist for Easy Peasy. And I just see that Feeding Matters just joined. I just did a plug-in for you guys a few minutes ago, so listen to it. <laughs> yeah, and here's the link to easypeasyfun.com, and then I'll post a link to Thank Bring you. Up Betty. Thank you. And let's see if this is going to work. And we'll put it on our, our social media. And for parents who still want more information, you can go onto our blog on easypeasyfun.com. Uh, and I have wrote a lot of uh, blogs that have to do with feeding. Uh, you can also go to our Pinterest page. We have a Pinterest that, that separates things for snacks, breakfast, lunch, dinner, in order to be able to make things easy for you, as well as a feeding and swallowing uh, board and feeding therapy board. And we post a whole bunch of stuff on there too. So feel free to utilize us as a resource and bringing up Betty as a resource. I've been listening to her podcast. Amazing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, feeding matters, talk tools. There's a lot of us out there that, um, that, you know, specialize in this. Another plugin um, is a friend of mine who actually does in-home therapy too. If you're in the state of Colorado, and her website is mymunchbug.com. And she has a number one uh, feeding book um, right now on Amazon, which is called Raising a Healthy, Happy Eater. And um, her, her book is phenomenal if you're a parent that's wanting to kind of get some more resources out there for you. So great. Thank you. That's awesome. And I will um, post all the links to the, all the things we've talked about today on my website. And yeah, I think that's it. So thank you so much for um, all of your great tips and advice. And thank you for everyone that joined us. Um, this has been really fun. Don Winkleman is a speech language pathologist and pediatric feeding specialist living near Denver, Colorado. You can find her on the web at easypeasyfun.com. That's E-Z-P-Z-Fun.com. For notes on today's show, you can visit bringingupbetty.com slash 14. Don't forget to check the website for details about our 12 days of giveaways starting December 1st. Thanks again for listening and have a great day and a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.